0: Job chapter one, as we continue our series back for more, and today um, I think we're gonna learn a lot from God's word. Um, there are things, there are things in life uh, that we've experienced to the point and degree that just the mention of them um, its all that's really needed to be able to relate to somebody. If somebody brings up something, we don't even have to have an explanation. We automatically know what they're talking about at just the mention of a certain thing or a certain experience. Um, these things are called shared life experience, which itself is pretty self-explanatory. Um, there are things that are universal, very straightforward in how they affect any given person. Some things uh, that we we face may affect us in different ways, but there's still something that's, uh, there's, there's still a connective tissue, there's still a kernel of, of relatability in those things. Uh, and, and most things that we go through in life, or a lot of things that we go through in life, um, there's a specific way in which they affect us. Uh, and again, even the things that affect us uniquely or distinctly, there's still something at the core that, we, that that is shared across any given person. And at the core of the experience is something that we all know something about even if it does scale. For instance, we all react differently to loss, but there's something shared between all of us who have lost someone or have went through some kind of season uh, of loss. But most shared life experiences are pretty universal uh, and instantly understandable across the room, uh, and no matter the age, the culture, or the person, or, or, or the place in, in life. And again, someone can just walk up to you and say, hey, this happened to me the other night, and we automatically get it. Someone can say, hey, I'm about to go through this, and we immediately know what they're about to go through. And, and, you know, there are those shared life experiences that take on more meaning or more relatability for people uh, within certain pockets of life. Uh, if you're a parent of a young child uh, and you're talking to other parents uh, of young kids or, 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 you know, not not uh, kids that are uh, growing up, uh, everybody understands why you look so tired. Everybody understands where the mess came from. Everyone understands why you're always sick or busy or both. Uh, it's hard to be busy and sick at the same time, but we find a way, don't we? Um, but if, if you're a sports fan, uh, you understand why someone is devastated when their team loses. Uh, If you have worked crazy hours or you currently work crazy hours, you understand when someone says, hey, my schedule is all over the place. I don't know if you'll be able to lock me down for anything. If you've been in college recently or, you know, you can remember those days, you understand the kind of stress that comes along every December, every May when finals rolls around. Uh, Again, within particular cultures, when we're our people, uh, we know why people get excited for certain holidays, certain events, festivities, and and so forth. So we could go on and on, but there are so many shared life experiences, it, it should make us realize as people we have so much more in common then we don't, uh, or then we have a different. Uh, we all know what it's like to process a national tragedy because we've all done it. We all know what it's like to have an exciting opportunity. We also all know what it's like to get overwhelmingly bad News, Uh, we don't have to explain ourselves when we mention these things because most likely the person across from us knows exactly what we mean, Uh, and at the very least, they've went through something similar, they've had to navigate something like it before on their own. Uh, So if I were to tell you that I got a splinter the other day, uh, there's no there's no need for this you know detailed explanation. You know what it's like to get a splinter. You've probably had a few in your life. It's so common you know exactly what is required to remove a splinter and what happens if you don't remove it soon enough and and things like splinters losing a tooth having a cold spring cleaning folding clothes sitting down for dinner all these things we immediately know what they are and we have the image in our minds and we don't need someone to go through the whole one step two step three step process of explaining it because we we know we know we've shared them before now now back to the splinter Isn't it odd how for guys, when we get splinters, we immediately look for the sharpest knife and we just start cutting away at our skin. Right? We, we get splinters, just like, hey, give me a saw. I got to get this thing out. It doesn't matter what I got to do. Now, ladies, you know, you're more delicate. You, you got tw- uh, uh, tweezers and needles and you carefully remove, uh, you sanitize and do all that stuff that, you're probably, that we probably should do. But, but uh, guys, you know, we just immediately start sawing on our skin. But, the, but you know the thing about getting splinters and why nobody bats an eye about what you got to do to excise it? Because we know that our skin will grow back, right? If you just cut away the skin a little bit, it might hurt for a couple days and you put a Band-Aid on it. But a couple of days later, the skin's gonna be back. And isn't it crazy? We we know that because part of being human is to get scraped and cut and get nicked and to fall and to, 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 to bleed a little bit. And we all have been through that before and we all have seen that our skin just... Grows back, right? It's pretty, pretty neat. Now, uh, same thing goes for punctures. Lindsay, uh, she's okay, but she stepped on a nail, went through her shoe the other day. Stepped on a nail, uh, which get your tetanus shot, people. That, that's always a good thing to do. But stepped on a nail, um, and yeah, hurt a little bit, and, and and she's okay. But again, splinters or nails, uh, they really don't worry us. They don't really bother us as long as they just cut the skin, because we know our skin will regenerate, and that's pretty, a pretty incredible thing about our skin. And I'm, I'm no dermatologist, but our skin constantly regenerates and rejuvenates itself. It's a pretty remarkable thing. And while some of us lack certain vitamins and certain things that, that, that our skin needs, uh, even still, our skin is wired to protect us from infections and germs and heal us from Wounds, And I tell you that not because you don't know it. You all know it. And you don't, you don't need, need an explanation about how it works. You just know that it works. We have this extraordinary built-in nature, restoration nature in our bodies. Uh, but I bring this up because I think it offers us a powerful lesson and perspective about how we can deal with with some of the serious struggles and hardships that we face. Uh, If there's one thing that we all shared in this past year is that we all encountered some bumps in the road. We all uh, suffered some kind of loss, some kind of pain, some kind of hardship. We lost a loved one. We had a diagnosis. We had an injury. We went through some external trial or trouble at home at work in our lives. Uh, Our struggles may not exactly be the same, but they are generally close on the spectrum. So I think this is something that, we, that can resonate with all of us and, and hopefully help all of us. You see, if we get a splinter, a scratch or a scrape, we don't really worry once the initial pain has subsided because we know it's really just a surface-level wound. We know that it's really just a, a skin-deep wound. And as long as it didn't get into our nerves or our bones, we're going to be okay. In fact, the wound's going to heal up and the new skin's going to be almost better than it was before. And, and what if I told you... That no matter what you faced last year or what you might face this year, you don't have to allow it to discourage you or defeat you. You don't have to become bitter because of it or broken by it. Because spiritually speaking, none of it can hurt you where it counts. None of it can actually get to the deepest parts of you. And it may be pretty painful to deal with. And I'm not trying to downplay anything that you went through. But none of it can actually get to the core of you. In fact, you may just come out on the other end of this. You may just come out on the healing side of this better for it. This may be impossible to imagine in the middle of a storm or in the immediate aftermath. And even some pain lingers for a long, long, long time. I get it. Your pain or your plight by no means is meant to be uh, cast aside. But if we can wrap our minds around the fact that the wound is only really skin deep, that there is a part of us that has been protected and maybe we aren't as sensitive to that part of us as we should be. And that's the goal of today's message, to make us aware of how our souls are safeguarded in every storm. And I mean every storm, even though I know some storms are horrible, that your soul is safeguarded in every storm that you face. And the prayer today is that we begin to see the work that God wants to do in the middle, in the aftermath of every storm that we face. In the Bible, there's the famous story of Job. Job was a real man that lived around the time of Abraham. And you want to know how you know they lived around the same time? Is because Abraham lived in Ur and Job lived in Uz. So they were not really sophisticated with their naming conventions at that point, right? We have really fancy city names, uh, you know, but, but they, were going, they were just making sounds, Uz and Ur. But, but uh, history tells us Job and Abraham lived around the same time. And in fact, Job's story was written contemporaneously. Job... Uh, pre- his book is probably the oldest on record, not just in the Bible. Job's story is one of the oldest stories written down in history. So pretty remarkable for that. Uh, Job's story is in the Bible uh, because it's true, but there's a reason why it's included in the scriptures. There's a purpose for its placement in the scriptures. And Job's story is in the Bible to help us wrestle with and understand the trials that we face and put them in new perspective and the thing about job's story is you may say well job didn't go through what i've been through and i went through this and you went through that and we've all went through different things job went through everything you could ever imagine job didn't just go through one trial he went through about five or six trials all at the same time that impacted him in the most devastating ways imaginable if you know the story of job you know that he loses everything from his possessions to his health. But through it all, the one thing he does not lose is his faith. And that's why the story's in the Bible. So that we might realize that you can lose anything and everything, and I know nobody wants to, but you can go through the most devastating of losses. You can suffer the most uh, horrible season of your life, and somehow, someway, you come out on the other side with your faith intact, and you might actually have a stronger faith as a result. Job is processing all of it, and you know the story. He's bombarded by these three philosophical types who try to convince him as to why he should give up. They try to convince him why why his faith is in vain, that he had to fend off these lofty opinions, these ideas that were thrown at him, where people are trying to blame God, blame Job, and really just undermine Job's resilient faith. But Job refuses to budge, even though he can't explain why all this happened to him. Job keeps believing. If you've never heard the story of Job, I think you'll find it pretty fascinating, pretty intriguing. And even if you've heard it a hundred times, I think there's something for us to learn today. So we're gonna jump into Job chapter one and read the setup. We'll read what happens to him and then we'll read how Job responds to it all. So let's look at verses one through 12 first up. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and the man was blameless and upright the one who feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters born to him. And also his possessions were, and back in these days, this is how you could tell if somebody was wealthy or not. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys in a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. So Job would have been on everybody's radar. Job would have been the envy of the land. Job was celebrated for his success, for his wealth, for his prowess, for his renown. And it says that his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day, most likely their birthdays, and would send, invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said that it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did this regularly. And you think, how could someone take a whole week off and have a feast for their birthday? Well, if you were the son or the daughter of the richest man in the world, you probably could do that, right? And Job loved his family. He took care of his family. He lived his life in such a way that he helped his family enjoy the success that he had. And Job was so uh, such a good man that he spent. He didn't even go to the festivities. He spent his time worshiping God and sacrificing for God in to God in their place in their step. That's what's going on on Earth. But the beauty of the Book of Job is we get to see what's going on in heaven, which is one of the rare examples of this in the Bible. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God, These are, that's, that's a phrase that refers to the angels of God, the servants of God. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, For, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, notice who starts this conversation. Notice who, who introduces this subject. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the land, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said to Job, Fear God for nothing. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in their land. But now stretch out your hand. And touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And God takes the bet. God says, Satan, I hear you and I raise you one. Behold, all that he has is yours. It's in your power. Only do not lay hand on his person. And and I'll add this in. God says to Satan, okay, you, you think that Job would abandon me if all of a sudden he lost all the stuff that we've just heard about? I bet you he could lose all of that. And he would still worship me. And Satan with a glimmer in his eye here looks to the Lord at the Lord and says, I'll take the bet. And I guarantee you, I'll win it. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, rubbing his hands together, dreaming of the ways he might bring Job to his end. Now, if you've never read the Bible before, you should read it because there's stories like that in the Bible that are so intriguing and so captivating. So here's the main takeaway from the setup of this story. Job is a faithful man and Job is a very blessed man. We hear that Job is righteous, he is blameless, he serves God, he loves God, he honors God, and he is a blessed man. I mean, the most blessed man in the world. When you talk about Job, you talk about two things. He's a faithful man and he is a blessed man. And that leads to a conversation between God and Satan, which again, I think this probably requires a little bit of an explanation about, hey, wh- what, is, wh- what is up with this conversation between God and the devil? Satan, uh, the word Satan in Hebrew means the accuser, the accusing one. And Satan in the Bible and in reality serves the purpose of trying to prove God that nobody really loves God beyond what God does for them and what God gives to them. And that's what Satan's doing in the story. He says, listen, God, the only re- reason Joseph worships you. The only reason he loves you, he only respects you because you've been good to him. He doesn't love you for you. He doesn't like you. He just thinks that you're the one that's given all this stuff, so he makes sure he pays lip service to you. If you took the stuff away, you would never see Job again, or you would never have him worship you again. I guarantee it. So Satan is accusing Job. His faith isn't legitimate. His faith isn't sincere. His faith is not actually uh, in you, God. His faith is in you because you've given him stuff. He just loves the stuff you've given him. He doesn't love you. Now, we know Satan is a fallen angel that escaped his final judgment for the same reason you and I have. This is important. Why did God not judge Lucifer when he fell from heaven? Why did God not judge Satan the moment he fell from heaven? The same reason why God does not judge you and me in this moment, because God is... Patient Not patient with Satan, he knows Satan is irredeemable he 's patient with us that God does not bring judgment before it's due time because God wants to give every one of us and if God judged any evil he 'd have to judge all evil so God gives you and I the patience that uh, the patience we need the time we need he is long suffering with us, and as a result he's long suffering with those that, that like the devil the devil rules the kingdom of darkness, and you and I you and I in our sin would be judged just the same, but God is Patient. So in the meantime, God uses Satan. God uses Satan to prove who is legit in their faith, who can endure the test and temptations of this world and prove to be sincere in their devotion to him. This story makes it very clear. Satan is on a leash. He is on a leash. So here's what's going on in the story. God thinks highly of Job so that he offers him up to be tested by the devil believing that Job will exemplify what a genuine believer looks like that's the premise here God thinks so highly of Job that he offers him up to the devil and says Satan go and see if you can get him to break I guarantee you you cannot even if he were to lose everything Job is still gonna believe that's what God, that's what God thinks However, Satan thinks that's a crazy idea, convinced that if he could just mess up Job's life a little bit, Job would completely abandon his faith. Now, I, I, I think this should be addressed. This whole exchange may make you feel a little uncomfortable. There's no reason to believe this conversation happened ever again between God and the devil in the same way that it happened in this text. I don't think that God is in heaven just offering any of us up to the devil to be tested on any given day. I don't think that's how it works. I know it happened in this story, but here's what I do know that we live in a fallen world where there is an enemy on the prow every single day. And whether or not this same scenario happens, whether or not God is the one who says to the devil, have you considered my servant so and so, whether that happens at all, we live in a fallen world and we live in a world where there is an enemy and the enemy tries to undermine our faith and tries to take down our faith. And I know this. Whether the devil takes anything away from us or not, everything we have in this life is temporary at best. I want you to hear that. Whether the devil is the one who takes it away from you or not, everything we have, including our relationships, because the way they exist in this world is not how they'll exist in the next. They'll be better than they are now, but that's, they're, not, they're temporary, Everything in his life, everything in his life is temporary at best. So whether the devil takes it or not, it's still temporary. If, if it is taken away or when it is taken away, the devil will absolutely use that to challenge our faith. So I don't know. I don't think that every scenario in, in the world that happens the way it happened in the book of Job. I don't think that every time we go through a bad time or a bad season or a loss, I don't think it's because God said, hey, if you considered them, go and see what you can do. I don't think that's how it works. But I do know the devil is always trying to undermine our faith. And I do know that in this world, things break, things fall away, things pass away. And when they do, when they do, because it's not an if, it's when, When we go through a season or a valley, a challenge, a suffering time, when we lose, when we hurt, when we suffer, the devil is there to say, can you still believe in God after you just went through that? Should you still believe in God after he let that happen to you? So whether or not the devil is the one that brings the, the power against us, he's absolutely there making us doubt, making us question our faith. In this story, God believes that were Job to lose everything, he would still hold fast his connection to him. And Satan is given the opportunity to bring all the chaos you can imagine on his life. So so are we all on the same page here? Job is a devoted believer. Job is a very blessed man. God thinks highly of Job and Satan sizes Job up. And that leads to this confluence of circumstances. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. It was most likely their oldest brother's birthday. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. So hey, Job, your livestock that makes you wealthy, that makes you have all this farm, you know, be able to farm and all this and have all this produce and have all these, this agricultural success, hey, your livestock, they're gone. While he was still speaking and others said, hey, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. So hey, Job, your sheep, your servants, they're gone. While he was still speaking, another said, hey, the Chaldeans have formed these three bands, raided the camels, took away them, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So hey, Job, your caravan that, that helps you, tra- that helps you, um, you know, send produce and send stuff all around the markets, and you make all that money from selling all these goods in all these different places in this Middle Eastern world, your camels are gone. While he was still speaking, another said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's home and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people and they are dead. You know, I don't think Job shed a tear over the, the camels or the oxen or the, or the sheep. He probably hurt for the servants, of, of course. But I have to imagine if he didn't fall to his knees before verse 19, verse 19 to what did it. I alone have escaped to tell you. I don't imagine that anything in this in this manner could ever happen to any of us on any given day because of the. This is a story of extremes, a story that actually happened. Job loses everything he had worked for and lived for, including those he loved the most, in the in a series of dramatic tragedies. And then we hear verse twenty. Job arose. You know why he, you know why he arose? Because he had fell down. Does that make sense? Because what would you do if you heard this kind of news? Job fell on his face. I imagine he cried a little bit. I imagine he was in agony. I, I, we don't know that he got up immediately. This could have been hours later. Who knows? But Job arose. He tore his robe and shaved his head, which is a symbol of mourning in that culture. And he fell, and he fell to the ground and he worshipped. Now I say this all the time, but you know how I know the Bible's not made up? Because you wouldn't make that up. Because nobody could ever lose what Job lost, and their natural response be worship. And you wouldn't make that up because that's not how we react. That's not how most people react. But a true story: Job loses everything. He falls to the ground. And, worships. and then he says this. Again, we've heard this a thousand times. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the Lord. And we say, whoa, whoa, Job, Job, you don't know. Do you know what happened? I mean, we've read the back. We've read the, the the, the you know, the off scene. We've read the act two that you didn't get to see. We know what happened. God didn't take it from you. The devil took it from you. But Job says, I don't need to know all that. I don't, I'm never going to know all that. Job didn't know all that. But Job gave credit to the God who he worshipped, the God who he believed was in charge of everything the Lord has given. The Lord Lord taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And that's what Satan came to do, to make him sin against God or curse God or accuse God. So in the resolution of the debate between God and Satan, Job worships in the midst of his loss. Job doesn't take some agnostic view and try to figure out how, oh, God must have not been able to stop this and, and God must have uh, you know, tried to and he couldn't. Job gives God all the credit and he actually says, hey, God's responsible for this and he's at peace with it. He's at peace with it. But the story doesn't end there. Satan goes back to God and begins to argue. The jury is still out on Job. Because Job is still the same Job. Yeah, he'd lost everything, but hey, you gotta you got let me have a little bit more, a little bit more area, a little bit more room to hurt Job. Chapter two, verse one. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Notice that the devil isn't the one that starts the conversation because he is under the authority of God in the story. That might not be a big deal to you, but it should be. Satan doesn't just barge up to God and say, hey, I got something to say. He has to go through the motions because God is the one on the throne. God is the one writing the story. God is the one in control of this. So yes, it seems as if Satan has a lot of power, but he doesn't even get to speak until he's called upon So Satan says, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. So from God's perspective, Job's lost a lot, but there's been no disconnect. There's been no separation. There's been no break in the relationship. Now, God knows what happened to Job. God understands. God has been aware of it. But God pretends like, hey, Satan, I thought you said it was going to destroy his relationship with me. It hasn't skipped a beat. So he, he plays coy with Satan. He says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the land, blameless, upright, one who fears God, shuns evil. And then he says, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said, Behold, all that he has, he is in your hand, but spare his life or do not touch his soul. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with painful boils and from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took for himself a pot shirt in which, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said, you speak as one uh, who is foolish. uh, uh, Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Satan is given free reign over Job's life, except he cannot touch his soul. He cannot take his life. And here's the point of this. Satan has the power to take everything from Job, but he cannot, we'll back up, He can't take away Job's relationship with God. That's the moral of the story. He cannot take away Job's connection with God. And don't you see this is about putting life in this world in the proper perspective? A lot can go wrong. Maybe a lot has gone wrong. That's the result of living in a world where things break, where the gravitational pull is down. But here's what we learn in the story. And you might raise your eyebrow to this. You might question this. But here's what we learn from Job. Here's what Job exemplifies. God's presence in our lives, God's presence in your life, in your relationship with him is not the least bit dependent on circumstances in this life. You may say, I don't know about that. But what do you do with Job? Job still, throughout all of this, is still standing, connected with God. His relationship went deeper. That might not describe your relationship with God. It at least describes Job's relationship with God. turns out that things do go wrong in and around our lives. Those moments that seem threatening to our peace may actually add to our peace in the long run. Those crises that appear to disrupt our comfort and joy may actually provide a greater sense of comfort and joy. They may tune us into something that we were not most aware of. They don't have to break you or make you bitter, but they just might make you better. They just might take you to a better place with God. This is the notion of what's at the heart of the story of Job. Job doesn't lose his faith because in spite of all that he lost, he doesn't lose his relationship with God. And people are lining up, his wife and all his friends, how can you still believe Job? And you're there, we're there with them, right? Job, how can you still believe? And Job's response is simple. Me and God are just as close as we were before all this went down. And this is Job's response, just to put my own words in the story. Do you think that my relationship with God is so shallow that it would cease to exist because I suddenly lost a bunch of temporary stuff? I'm not trying to make light of what Job lost. He lost children. But Job said, do you think my relationship with God is so shallow that if, when I lost these things that are not going to always exist the way they do on earth, do you think if I, that losing those things made me lose my faith in God? Now, I know that's a big, that's a mouthful to say. I I get it. I'm just telling you what Job shows us. I don't blame you if you've had a harder time than Job. I don't fault you. But I want to present Job to you because I want us to see that Job shows us something that's possible that maybe we didn't realize. Job wants us to know a relationship with God is so much better than we may be otherwise assumed. It's not contingent on our status, not the mercy of what's happened or what's temporary or subject to change. Our relationship with God is secured and anchored in his might, in his wonder, in his eternity. Do you really think that all God has to offer is some temporary fame or temporary fortune or some short-lived comfort? I hope not. I hope it goes deeper than that. People would push back and say, but Job, wouldn't wouldn't a good God protect you? Wouldn't a good God prevent bad things from happening to you? And Job says, not necessarily. A good God provides what we need. But a good God may also take away what we don't need. What did Job say back in chapter one? The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be his name or holy is his name. He's a good God. So if God is the one who knows what to give me, then he must be the one that knows what to take from me. A good God may move our lives around so that we are best positioned to be close to him and get the most out of him. Job would say, and I think he would encourage us all to say, who am I, who am I, to claim I know more than God knows? Aren't I better off simply trusting in him? I, listen, No, this was never ideal. Nobody wants to go through what Job went through. Job didn't want to go through what he went through. But, but Job's rationale is, who am I to question whether God knows what he's doing? And and if God does take something from me and removes my comfort, if God allows something to come into my life that threatens my comfort, then shouldn't I trust him to show me what's good? And shouldn't I trust him to show me what's going to come out of this at the end of its course? Job would tell us we can allow our trials and hardships to make us bitter, we can allow them to break us, or we can seek out the good that God wants to bring from them. That's the options. That's three options that we have. They can make us bitter. They can, make, they can break us and they can leave us broken, or somehow, some way, they can make us better. That's the three options that we got. And I, I think we've all been in the bitter category. We've all been in the broken category, and nobody can blame us for that, right? That's what life does. It makes us bitter. It makes us hard. It breaks us. It makes us hurt. But ultimately, the worst that the enemy can throw at us, the worst that he, this world can bring down on us, it's just skin deep. And you know what happens once you clean the wound? Skin heals back. I'm not trying to make light of what you may have faced in recent days, months, or years. I don't know what you've went through and I don't know what you might go through tomorrow. But here's what I do know. We cannot elevate the enemy to the seat of power that he does not have nor he never will have. Who is on the throne in this story? We cannot exchange the places of God and the enemy. We may lose our possessions, we may lose our, lose our health, we may lose our loved ones, and all of that hurts. But Lord, I know. But nothing the devil comes at us with, nothing this fallen world brings our way can take away our relationship with our Heavenly Father, and that's the thing that lasts forever. And if that's what lasts forever, shouldn't we be more in tune with that in the first place? All that comes along with knowing God, the supernatural joy and peace and hope, the sense of purpose, all that, all that is invulnerable and can endure the most intense of fire. It all comes down to our perspective and how determined we are to trust God in the midst of a trial. When we doubt that God has a good plan in the midst of something bad, we are saying that God is weaker than our enemy. He is weaker than our circumstances. He is weaker than our plan. We know that's not true. We actually know that God is going to work something good out of what appears to be and out of what actually feels so bad. To wrap everything up today, I would love for you to turn with me to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter four. Uh, go through the Gospels, Acts, Romans. You'll come to first and 2 Corinthians. I wanna read a passage where the Apostle Paul is explaining his own trials and he, he really has a way of putting into words not just how we suffer, but why we suffer. And again, you can take it or leave it. You can say, I'd rather not suffer. The Apostle Paul says, well, the reality of living in this life, especially as a Christian, is that we are going to face hardships. And and he says the opportunity is that we can compartmentalize those trials that we face and actually see that God is doing something in the midst of them. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 We have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's our bodies, that's our flesh. The treasure is the gift of God, the hope of of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure so that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So here's Paul explains himself right off the bat that we have been given a gift in these fragile vessels, earthen vessels that break, these fragile vessels so that something may be on display. God's power might be on display. That's what the point of all the, all the trials that we face are. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifesting in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death, and, and that's his way of saying we are always going through trials for Jesus' sake, that or so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And when he refers to life of Jesus, he's referring to the resurrection life. So, you, do you hear what Paul is saying? that we go through these things in these breakable, in these, these, these temporary vessels, and we suffer in this world so that the resurrection power of Jesus might be not on display, but experienced in our hearts. Verse 16, he concludes this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed, restored, rejuvenated, revived day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now I'll stop there. I know what you're going through might not be categorized, in your opinion, as light. You might would say, Justin, what I went through wasn't light. What I'm going through isn't light. It's a little heavier than that. But this is how Paul describes it. Hey, Job, Job lost everything. Hey, that's a light affliction, according to Paul. Our light affliction is which for a moment, which is uh, working for us, working in us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So that's how Paul chalks this up. So here's how Christians are supposed to and how we can see every trial, every tribulation. Here's how you can look at every struggle, every setback. This is your luxury. This is your gift. This is your inheritance as a Christian. Other people cannot see this and do not get this. You as a Christian can see this. We fall down so that God might raise us up in his power and his glory. We fall down Say that with me, so that, so that. Why do you fall? Why do we fall? Why do we break? Why do we go through pain and loss? So that. I know that those are not the words that come to your lips in the middle of the worst moment of your life. I get that. But Paul has given you the opportunity to put this in your, to, to bury this in your heart so that it might come to life when you need it most. We fall down so that God may display his power, raise us up in his power and glory. The heavier the burden, the greater the blessing that God is working. What does Paul say in verse 17? The light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more eternal weight of glory. The end result is a more valuable place, state of mind, state of being than the previous. If we focus on the burden, we become bitter, we remain broken. If we've placed the burden in the seat of sovereignty over our lives, we'll become bitter and broken. But if we see the burden as something God is using, we find the blessing that is going to come out of it. We see how God will use it to make us better than before. In another place, this is how Paul explains it. You probably are more familiar with this. Romans eight eighteen. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Say the words in yellow with me. Not worth comparing. Not worth comparing. So what you're going through and what you go through, it's big, it's hard, I get it. It hurts, I understand it. It's not worth comparing. What's the next part? That is to be. Say that with me. That is to be. So something you're going through right now is gonna produce something that has not showed up yet and it might not show up for a while. It will be. It's not worth comparing. To the work that God is doing. To the glory that is to be revealed in us. And we know this one. 828. We know. All things work together for good for those that love God, those that are called according to his purpose. Let's run through those yellow words together, these yellow phrases together. We know. We know all things for good his purpose let's do it again we know all things for good his purpose again I know this is hard I get it (laughs) but Job knew didn't he Paul knew you can know the premise of this whole series is that we know that God will show up in this year and we can take it a step farther. We know that God will show up in the trials and our valleys and our darkness and lead us to a better place. In fact, he led us there so that we might gain something. I know that in the moment we won't all be like Job. It's very hard. In the aftermath, whatever happened to us cannot be undone. I understand the memory does not fade away and it never will, maybe. The pain is fresh for many and it stays there for many. But if we see that God has safeguarded our souls, he's kept us through it all, and now he's willing to do a work within us, we experience something that that will make it all worth it. This isn't some magician's trick. This isn't some mind game. This is scriptural truth that you can bet on. The weapons of this present world, the trials of this fallen world, the, weapon, the, the sufferings, the trials, the weapons the enemy wages against us, our sovereign God, our sovereign good God uses them to leave us at a better place, better than before. That is our hope as a Christian. I know there are many people that hear that and read that and they roll their eyes, and, but don't take my word for it. Take Job, take Paul, take God's word for it. And let me just ask you this. What if you believed this? How different would you have responded to every bad day that happened last year? What if you have believed this all of 2023? How different would you have responded to every heartache, every trial, every crisis, big or small? What if you believed all this? How would you have reacted differently? And and now that you know this, or you can know this, now that you know this, how, how different might you respond and react to what comes your way this year? Again, what does 2 Corinthians 4, 16 say? Therefore, we do not lose heart because the wounds of this life can't hurt us there. You hear me? We don't lose heart. We don't give up in our souls because the wounds of this life don't go that deep. I know they go deep. I know they hurt. But they cannot affect, they cannot disconnect you from your heavenly father. Satan would love for you to believe that. But that's not true. That God is actually using these things to restore us and raise us up with an eternal outlook so that we might possess a supernatural kind of joy, a peace that in the face of whatever comes our way stands firm. Think about this. The night that Jesus died, the night he was going to be arrested and ultimately crucified, he made these promises to his disciples. He made these promises to us. And John fourteen twenty seven, uh, 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm gonna give you my peace. And then he said this in the very next chapter. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How did he face the cross with peace and joy? Because he saw through the end of it. He saw the resurrection and he trusted God. He was crucified and he suffered so that you and I might have hope in our trials. There's this little line in the prophecy about Jesus' death in Isaiah 53, where it says, by his wounds, we are healed. You know what that means? It means that you and I can find healing from our greatest wounds, our greatest wounds through the hope and promise of Jesus' resurrection. Is your heart hurt? Does your heart hurt because of something that's happened to you in this life? Last year, right now, this year? I get it. I I guarantee it's real pain. By his wounds, you can be healed. Because just as Jesus was raised back to life, so are we. Isn't that the story? Isn't Isn't that what 2 Corinthians tells us? Isn't that what Romans tells us? Isn't that how Job demonstrated his faith? By... Just as God, Jesus was raised up, you and I are raised up. Just as He was raised up, more glorious, more powerful, better than before, so are we. That's the story. That's the that's the message. Would you be willing to put your faith in God and and trust your life into His hands and into His promises, so that whenever this world throws its worst at you, whatever burden comes upon you, you don't have to be left broken. And your heart doesn't have to become bitter. You can actually be better for it. You can actually be better because of it. Again, don't take my word for it. Take Paul, take Job's. take Jesus. Take his word, take his promise. Just as he was raised back, so are we. I don't know what pain you're carrying around in your heart. I don't know what bitterness you're carrying around, what, what, what has broken you or has broken inside of you, but the Bible promises you and me that we can actually find the blessing of God and be made better on this end of every trial. And that no matter what we've lost or what we lose, God will always be with us. That is a promise that you can always, always, count on. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that challenges us in our worldly beliefs, but also comforts us in our worldly grief. Lord, I don't know where this lands with people today, but I'm sure that everybody here in the house has went through something that's left them bitter, that's left them broken, and and they wonder, can I be better because of this? Can I be better off on the other side of this? The Bible promises that they can, and their inheritance as a Christian, their hope as a Christian, the promise to them as a Christian is that they can find hope, and they can find peace and joy in the most unlikely of circumstances. Lord, if there's somebody here today that just doesn't have faith in God and this this convinces them, this shows them that there is a God who loves me, a God who is bigger than my circumstances, a God who can raise me back better than before. Lord, would you use this moment of reflection, this moment of invitation to help all of us internalize these truths and decide today, like Job did, God gives and God takes. Blessed be his name. I'm gonna worship and see his glory to the end, through to the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.